This is the Master Marketer Show, powered by Proofpoint Marketing. Each week, we explore the mindsets, skill sets, and tool sets the top B2B marketers use to drive results. Gain actionable insights, one masterful, revenue-generating success story at a time. Let's get started. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Master Marketer Show. I'm Mike Grimberg, CEO of Proofpoint Marketing, and today I've got Mason Cosby for the second time on the show with us. Uh, Mason is now the Director of Demand Gen at Sales Assembly. And Mason, let me set this up a little bit. So a couple things. One is, you know, we, we talked to a number of SaaS folks on, on this show and obviously folks that are not in SaaS. But the reality is, if you're on LinkedIn and just out there in general, a lot of the talking heads, if you will, over-index on SaaS marketing. And the reality is, that's less than half of B2B. And that other more than half is very different. Uh, there's certain concepts obviously apply and are the same, but there are a lot of things that don't. Uh, and you're in, you come from a service-based business. Now you're in a more membership uh, style uh, business, but still not SaaS. So that, that's one thing to point out. So we're going to focus on that. And the other thing is you're new to your role. You, I think you just got done with your 90 day, I believe. Yeah, literally, literally you, right before this interview was the wrap up of my 90 day review. So we're like, if you want to know what to do in the first 90 days, go. we'll talk through it. <laughs> And that is exactly what I want to do. And the reason for, to set the backdrop a little bit more, I suppose, is, you know, I think every market out there knows things are tight right now. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. There's a lot of uncertainty, economic environment, uh, you know, scrutinizing of budgets left and right, like every single dollar. And if you're a new marketer coming into a, a new organization, um, things are rough, for lack of a better word. Right. It's it's a you really have to prove your worth pretty quickly. So that's the topic of our conversation. And Mason, first question really for you is how do you like when you were coming into this new role at Sale Assembly, what was your mindset coming into it, knowing the environment you're coming into? Not and I'm actually curious also like the internal environment, but then the macro. So Two, two things, really. One, I wanted a company in which the product and the customer base clearly loved the company in and of itself. Um, you know, admittedly, I'm one of the driving factors behind the transition was I am expecting my first child. So I don't want I didn't want to join into a company in which it's like, all right, three months from now, I'm going to be out of a job because there's a layoff. So I, I looked for an organization in which there was a solid, solid customer base that would stick around. And then the other aspect was really like the financial instability of the organization. So sales assembly is privately held. They've always been privately held. Like there's no outside investors. And the way in which they had built the organization was to have specific financial runways so that we could build marketing in the right way versus this, you got to hit the ground running. Let's run lead gen. Like I, I've been given the runway to effectively actually build a demand gen program. I also realized I didn't say, Mike, thanks for having me back again. I always love getting to chat. So excited <laughs> to be here for round two. <laughs> and glad you're here for round two. And something you just said, you know, I was listening to an interview uh, 
um, uh, with, I, I forget his name. I've brought it up like in pretty much every single conversation because it's a really great interview. Um, but he's a uh, ex uh, Boston consulting group guy. And it was specifically, they were talking about private companies versus public companies and how much stronger uh, private companies are because of their ability to have a, a longer time horizon from a decision-making perspective, from a strategy perspective. So everything you're describing makes total sense. And even, I mean, obviously, you know, proof point is no investors either, et cetera. So just us. And it does allow us to make some decisions thinking about the long term and not having to worry about, you know, the quarterly reporting cycle. Yeah. And one other thing just around like why and what I was looking for, just to, to be sure that I, I tie this kind of all full circle um, to your point around a lot of tech and SaaS being over indexed on LinkedIn. I looked at like what organization could I join where I can use the things that are personally Mason Cosby to drive an impact. So yes, we are not SaaS, but we serve the tech space. And because of those relationships through LinkedIn, like we've already been able to actually source sponsor and partner relationships that are actually driving revenue impact because the product pipeline takes a little bit longer from a marketing perspective, but using marketing relationships that I have as a marketer to essentially be a lead source has driven some pretty immediate impact as well. So those are the three reasons of, I wanted to find a financially stable and healthy company where I could have the long-term I wanted an organization in which like I knew that I was probably going to not get laid off in the next three months just because of the industry in and of itself. And lastly, uh, an organization where I could clearly tangibly uniquely make an impact. Yeah. And I, I really actually like that we started with this. I was didn't plan it, but I, I like that you went there because I think this mindset of being really uh, purposeful with where you go based on your network, I actually think is an interesting lens to look at it because I don't know that a lot of people think about it that way, right? It's, well, what industries have I been in? Where's my skill set? Which those are all important, I think. But I love that you mentioned, well, I have these relationships built in the tech space and we, this company sells into the tech space. That makes me more valuable and allows me to hit the ground running faster. So let's talk macro environment. Again, you're, I mean, we talked the micro, if you will, within the organization, but the macro environment still isn't great, right? You're selling into an industry where budgets are tight, which means sales cycles are probably getting longer. Um, you know, conversations are maybe tougher to have, et cetera, et cetera. What should somebody like, well, actually, instead of being hypothetical, how were you thinking about that? So when you were, you know, the, the week before your first day, let's just say, what was, what were you thinking about? Like, how do I like, how do I make an impact quickly? What do I need to do in this macro environment? Yes, I was fortunate that because of the relationships that I had, I actually did essentially customer interviews during my interview process with champions of sales assembly to then identify like, why do you buy sales assembly? And why do you re renew sales assembly in the, in the current environment? And to that point, yes, there's been a ton of layoffs in the tech space and we sell specifically a skill development platform that helps go-to-market teams close the skill gaps across their organization into the tech space. So if your teams are shrinking, then kind of the messaging actually becomes you need to scale through skills. 
Like you need to, you can't over index on headcount. You have your current team, you have to upskill your team. And our platform is actually ridiculously affordable. Um, you can go check out our website for pricing, but like it's $30,000 a year flat. Doesn't matter the size of the team. We do have startup pricing. So we actually go lower if, if it makes sense. But like, I think through of the lens of, for example, we have a client that is LinkedIn. They have a massive sales team. They're paying 30 grand. Doesn't matter the size of their team. So I think of it through the lens of if I have a hundred team members that are primarily between sales and CS, cause we actually do have a massive um, CS and kind of post sales audience. If I have under team members between those two audiences, I'm investing $300 a year per team member to ensure that they have the skills to effectively do their jobs. And then I went and I looked at all the research and the data that then showcases the fact that like 70% of employees don't actually have the skills that they need to do their jobs. So then it was like, oh, this is pretty, like this is pretty apparent of what does the, the messaging need to be to meet the macro environment? 70% of your team members don't have skills that they need. You just downsized your team significantly and you tried to keep your A players, but the reality is you probably have a lot of B players as well and a few C players. So how do you invest in such a way that you can make your C players B players and your B players B plus and make your A players actually follow the process that you want to follow? Um, so that like that's the message. That's the way in which we're actually going to market now is addressing the fact that, yeah, you don't have as many team members. So the team members you have have to be effective. So to clarify one thing, even before you started, as you're going through the interview process <laughs> for this role, you're talking to people that you have in your network that you would potentially be selling into. And you're having really a customer research messaging discovery, if you will, conversations with them. I didn't know, but I am like, yes, that's <laughs> what that's what I was doing. Because to some extent, I actually bumped into these people because I was looking at sales assembly case studies and their website to see who was giving testimonials. And I looked at the website and it's like, oh, I know these people or I see them showing up in their content. So what I did is that I reached out to those people and I asked, hey, would you just be willing to give me, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes to chat through, like, should I even take this job in the first place? So through that, being a marketer and actually being a consultant, I just kind of naturally <laughs> do these uh, discovery type conversations. Um, so yeah, that like, to your point, it kind of was inherent. Like that's just the way that I unfortunately, unfortunately operate as a person. Um, but what it turned into was having a pretty significant level of clarity and confidence that sales assembly is a valuable product and has a clear market through which we can sell. And those that buy sales assembly, typically we become massively ingrained in their organizations and they love us and they stay with us for years and years and years. So again, having all of that and then understanding how do I tie that back to the macroeconomic environment made it very clear of, yes, it's a great product and it's a product that's still needed, if not even more needed in this environment. So this would be a good career move for me. So, you know, we, we like to start with mindsets and we've been talking about that here. I mean, really what I'm, the thing I want to highlight here is having a customer research mindset from the very beginning and finding ways to get in, uh, get that information, 
possibly before you get a no role if you can, <laughs> um, if you've got the right network, is a really solid way to make an impact faster. Yeah. But what, like, are there, is there anything, maybe now that you're through your 90 days, is there anything that you wish you would have done differently from a mindset perspective? Yeah. I mean, there, there is this delicate balance of, I talked about at the beginning, like I have the runway to build the appropriate demand gen program. But if you've ever heard me talk about that sales and marketing alignment piece, the, the thing that I always say is nobody cares what marketing does as long as pipeline is full. So I jumped straight into the more top of funnel thought leadership content creation. Cause admittedly that's, that's kind of my, my sweet spot. Like that's where I naturally gravitate towards. So I created all these frameworks and all these processes to then scale thought leadership out across multiple people. When in reality, like I just left this call with our CEO and we came up with admittedly a very simple process through which we can generate effective pipeline. And like, we could have been doing it from day one. And I'm just, I'm recognizing, mm, I didn't think through that. So if I, if I had done anything differently, I would have spent less time thinking so top of funnel because yes, we did generate some pipeline impact, but I probably could have generated more pipeline impact in the immediate. Had I, had I gone bottom funnel up versus top of funnel down. How much of that do you think is due to um, thinking about it almost like sales versus marketing versus just a singular go-to-market motion, go-to-market team? Yeah, I mean, you, you know that in my last role, I was both marketing and sales. So I think about it from a single go-to-market motion anyway. But I guess when I came in, I was looking at the team and I had two salespeople that were both already incredibly active on LinkedIn and were already doing a decent job of self-sourcing pipeline. So my immediate thought was they probably have that covered. I can go build something else. And in reality, what I should have looked at is this is already working. How do we double and triple down and optimize this? Because the reality is, and I, I say this with all genuine kindness, but like there's not a strategy or a process around what they're doing. It's just working because of naturally who they are. If we were to systematize this and build some processes and actually understand the specific conversions across what they're doing, we could probably make this even better, which is what we're now doing. So again, like the thing that I wish I had done a little bit differently in the first 90 days is instead of saying, for lack of a word, like these are the things that I'm good at. So I'm going to go do these things because they're natural for me. And I know that they will make an impact in the long term actually taking the objective view of what is currently working in the business, which I did to some extent, but instead of saying, Oh, that seems to be working. We'll leave that alone. I should have said that seems to be working. Why? How do we optimize that? So again, I did the objective view. I looked at the cross the business, but I don't think I came to the right conclusion. So that's the thing that I would do differently. And I think that I can recommend to people is if there's a clear source that is generating pipeline, start there, figure out why that is generating pipeline, optimize that, so you can even double and triple down on that. And then you can actually go out and build the other things that will generate longer term pipeline because you have the immediate pipeline. Again, nobody cares what marketing does as long as there's pipeline. So that's, that's the yep. biggest lesson I think that people can walk away with. Yeah. I mean, what you're describing is the, the typical trap. I think a lot of marketers fall into in this, in terms of, like you said, Nobody cares what marketing is doing as long as pipeline is full. But once you start missing your number, 
Now your cash flow is a problem. Now it starts spiraling downhill. Budget cuts sometimes have to have all this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, all the things you wanted to do long term, you can't do anymore strictly because you didn't focus on that bottom funnel first. Yep. Another thing um, I've been saying a lot is the long term never gets here if you don't take care of the short term. <clears throat> yep. And there's there's a happy medium there for sure. Um what I like about it, what you're talking about is it's, hey, let's find what's working. Ask us the why question. Ask ourselves the why question. And then let's apply systems thinking to it and really figure out a way to scale it. Because a lot of these things, a lot of things that companies do in general that, that actually work and drive a media pipeline are not scalable in and of themselves. Yep. It's a lot of disparate things that are, if you had to try to scale it, you'd fail miserably because it's very hands-on, very individual, you know, one-on-one -on -one type interaction. But if you step back and apply systems thinking to it, you usually can figure it out and say, okay, well, we can build a process around this and triple the pipeline that comes out of it. So I agree with everything that you're saying in theory. Why don't we just go ahead and give the practical, like, what I'm now going to be doing. <laughs> that is that exact process yeah. of, again, if anybody knows sales assembly, you probably know Matt Green, you know, Jeff Rossett, they're both very active on LinkedIn. Uh, you may know Tanner Lacey, who is also from Spiff, was a co-founder now works at, at sales assembly. And like, they all create content, they all get solid engagement, they all have great followings. The reality is though, that like we have never had an intentional system through which we try to convert those audiences. Like there is no direct message strategy. It is entirely we post, we comment back, like we make jokes and that's, that's it. So now like one of the most effective things that I did when I was at Gravity Global and became into a, or transitioned into a sales role, I announced that I made this job transition. I had like 300 likes on that post, which was great. And then I went through and looked at everybody that liked the post and I messaged a hundred people and said, thank you so much for engaging and supporting. This is my new job. Like this is who I'm trying to help. If there's anybody that you know, that needs help with these things, let me know. That simple message, it was a very light ask. I sent 100 of those messages, I scheduled 30 meetings just from that one post. So again, looking at LinkedIn, there's not been a direct conversion strategy around, we have actively engaged audiences that need our solutions. We probably should just give them a light ask. So like that's what I'm doing over the next month is systematizing that actual process to generate an immediate pipeline and that ties in well with what I did from a thought leadership perspective, because we have actually created a system and a process around how do we tie our product, or sorry, our content on LinkedIn back directly to product so that it actually makes sense so that we're not just like sending messages of like, hey, I'm glad you like my sales advice. Oh, by the way, we offer this skills development platform. So again, it's, it's tying directly back into what we actually offer as a company in a way that is helpful and valuable. So it all ties together. But to your point, if we had started it with LinkedIn, man, you're getting like 400 likes on a post and 200 comments. Like that is a network right there that we should have been tapping into to convert into pipeline immediately. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes total sense. And I, it, it's funny you bring this up because I was, uh, I was on another podcast the, uh, just the other day and we were talking about, you know, relationship like growth, which is what we're all about. And one of the questions I got was, well, where do people generally go wrong? And my answer is pretty much what you're talking about is a big part of that you build it, you know, 
We start with affinity. We have conversations. The end goal is still to drive pipeline and revenue through relationships. So you have to have a process for turning conversations and being able to, at some point, ask. Yeah. And that's where a lot of people, I think that's where a lot of people go wrong with the demand gen side, with what we do across the board is, okay, at some point you have to have a system for starting sales conversations. Yeah. And again, there is that balance of if you put out enough content, inevitably people will come inbound. But the reality is right now in our current market, inbound is down because budgets are tight. So how do you then go outbound in a strategic and careful, um, but also for lack of a word, caring way to where you're not just spamming, but you're saying, look, you've clearly gotten value out of the things that I've been sharing. Like, would it ever make sense for us to have a conversation around you potentially partnering? Yes or no? Fantastic. If not, I'm glad the content is helpful. If you know anybody, let me know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I think there's a, I, I, I really dislike the, the general conversation of inbound versus outbound. This is bad. This is better, whatever. The reality is there's crappy inbound, there's crappy outbound. Like bad transactional type activity exists on both sides. And it's not that one is necessarily better than the other. And also the reality is most teams, especially if you're not in a product led organization, you're going to have to have both. Yep. In one, some one way, shape or form. Yeah, I know. So I, I try to stay away from those discussions of what's better. Yeah, it's, it's just a blend of everything. I know one, literally one organization that's entirely inbound and they happen to serve the SMB. But to your point, uh, there's there's got to be the appropriate blend and the balance and it's got to be from a strategic perspective. Mindsets we talked about. Right? We talked about customer research. We talked about uh, the mindset of, okay, wh we're really understanding business results past and present, if you will. Um, what about skill sets? Like first 90 days, what's the most important skill set that you have that you think has made you successful? Adaptability and just the ability to say, this is figure outable. Um, so I mean, to give context, I joined, I was the second marketer that the company had ever hired. Within my first five weeks, my boss actually transitioned. So I went from a team of two back to a team of one. And in that, there was, a, I mean, there was a lot that that changed. So like, I, I think the thing that has been most important is that adaptability, um, especially in our current market. Again, I've actually had a number of conversations with people that have had what are called battlefield promotions where their leader got laid off and now they're expected to lead. So if like, if you want to be successful in this current market, there's a lot of stuff that is outside of your control and outside of your hands in, in, I would say even more importantly, also outside of your company's control or outside of your company's hands. So again, to that extent, I think there has to be a level of adaptability. Now, within the tactical skill sets, though, it would be thought leadership, content creation, and understanding effective distribution. Because we are a smaller organization that leans a lot into organic channels and email channels over paid. We don't have a paid media strategy. So the only way in which organic works effectively is you have to have good content writers and you have to have a good uh, position and a good actual approach to the way in which you talk through messaging. So first 90 days, literally the first six weeks, actually I overhauled our company's message and repositioned us within the market. We were kind of this all things to all people type approach. And we specifically honed in on the 
again, the skill gap component of skill gaps, the kind of the underlying brand. We don't, we don't talk about this publicly, but like the underlying brand narrative, everything we try to talk through is skill gaps are the quiet killer of growth because they're not big. They're not flashy. Like a team that can't get the job done. doesn't matter what technology you implement. If they can't do the job, you're not going to grow. So again, really coming in and identifying what is the overarching brand message and then how do all of our individual thought leaders and SMEs tie back into that overarching brand message and how do we get that out? So I think the thing that people have really latched onto that that was really helpful is doing what I've called the SME niche podcast tour. So within the first 90 days, I've set up 35 podcast interviews and panels for our SMEs that will be done before the end of July. And they all have the same brand narrative. Like they are all talking through the fact that skill gaps are, are preventing your growth. And they come at it from their individual angles of it could be sales leadership. It could be revenue operations. It could be product. It could be customer success. But the reality is that we're always tying back into in the beginning and in the end and kind of wherever it makes sense, skill gaps are preventing you from actually growing as an organization. So doing that then actually created a, a cadence through which we can then repurpose that content back into social, back into clips, back into a podcast. Like we've, we just launched a podcast seven weeks ago, not seven, four weeks ago. We have seven episodes live. We've got content literally lined up through the end of October. I think we're going to start hitting twice a week releases like in two weeks because we've just started to create so much content that is tying back to a specific brand narrative. So I think those are the essential skill sets of in our current environment, how do you get a little bit scrappy to get a message out there that ties directly back into a narrative that you want your brand to become known for? Is there, did you like in the last 90 days, have you felt like you were missing anything? Like, or was there a, a skill set like, man, I really wish I would have this would make my job so much easier right now. A hundred percent. There are three. <laughs> um, the first is like, I wish I could very confidently come in from a paid media perspective because right now people are pulling their ads. So ads are actually less expensive, but I've just never done paid media. So I don't have the confidence to say, yeah, give me a budget to run paid ads because it's, it's just genuinely not my skill set at all. But I also know because ads are less expensive and because ads are just guaranteed uh, distribution to your targeted audience, that'd be way more effective. And again, if that's where we have to figure out what the goal is, it'd be way more effective to educate our appropriate audience on the value of our company and why it's necessary in the long term if we were to run paid ads. And I know that. I just don't have the skill set and I don't have the bandwidth to make that happen or the budget, unfortunately. Uh, the second thing would just be uh, revenue operations. So the VP, not VP, sorry, that the president at sales assembly, his name is Brad Rosen. He's incredible. He was the former VP of RevOps at G2. That was like employee number three at G2 and helped them scale to like 600 team members. In reality, he can do like anything when it comes to RevOps. He is so freaking good at what he does. The challenge is he's also one person. So it's more of a bandwidth challenge and a knowledge challenge. And the other thing is that we're doing so much that's in third party places that we cannot track that it has become a little bit more difficult to specifically showcase the exact impact that marketing can have 
because it's that delicate balance as a solo marketer in a smaller organization of, I need to go execute to get the results, but then I need to take time away from the execution to actually then showcase the results and do the reporting. And that takes a fair bit of time. And I can't really do the real-time reporting because we're doing so much in a place that, that will not give me real-time data. So again, it's that delicate balance. I think I've gotten it down now in a, in a cadence that they appreciate and that is honest, but like I, I literally two weeks ago was able to actually showcase the number of sourced opportunities that were marketing sourced in the first place. So again, I think it would be more, it would have been helpful to have better rev, revenue operations holistically. Uh, and then the last piece is video editing. Um, I'm getting by with Descript. I'm pretty good on that front. But like, if I needed an actual video edited, and it's just not my skill set, and it's it's, I can get eighty percent of the way there, and like, that's good for right now. But as we showcase specific impact around video, uh, the last twenty percent is really what differentiates somebody from being noise versus actually standing out. But that twenty percent takes an extra like eighty percent of the time. So from that perspective, like I just eighty thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it's just not been a focus, but the reality is like, if I was a better video editor, if I knew how to do paid media, and if I was better at, at kind of the revenue operations reporting component, I think that those would be the three things that I would, that would, I, I would love to have had in the first 90 days. We'll keep going down our framework here, talk mindsets, talk skill sets, what about tools? What what have you what are the tools that you have used? And again, you know this at this point. I'm not just talking software platforms, although feel free to mention any that you think are valuable in here. But we think of tools very loosely, meaning a particular process. If you've got a spreadsheet that you've either created or borrowed from somebody, whatever it is, like yeah. anything that's helping you do the work. So I'll start with tools and the technology sense, because I, you, you know, I love a really lean tech stack. Um, that's also super in, like inexpensive. So I mentioned Descript. It's like 18 bucks a month to edit 10 hours of video content, which is super helpful. Uh, I use a thing called PodSqueeze, and I'm using the free version of that where I can upload audio, and it will pull out specific timestamps with topics that were addressed at those times, which then makes it really easy from that perspective. Uh, I know people have a love-hate relationship with it, but I am using ChatGBT, so sorry. Not for content creation, but what I call content organization. So I take transcripts and then I prompt ChatGBT to effectively organize the content, remove all the personal remarks, and actually make that content make sense. And from there, I then copy and paste that over and I edit it. But essentially, I use ChatGBT as my content writer from transcripts that are original content. So again, I'm not going to ChatGPT and just saying, hey, make this post on this thing but I'm feeding it the content and having it to, to kind of streamline that repurposing process for me. Mm -hmm. And I think those are kind of the essential tools that are actual technology that I mean, outside of your, your HubSpot, your WordPress, those things, as far as um, other tools, I was a part of a sales podcast community which then identified 118 sales podcasts that were active with the hosts. So when I talk about setting up these niche podcast tours, I sent out 80 messages and got 30 set up, which is pretty solid. But again, I had to find what are the 80 podcasts that I want to set people up on. So again, from that perspective, 
that was a tool of figuring out where do I find these podcasts. Yes, you can do Google. Yes, you can do Spotify, but it's helpful when you have the ability to understand who do I need to reach out to in this specific way. Uh, another tool was from Stephen G. Pope, which is the content matrix. So essentially, he has a way in which you can identify quickly and effectively what are the five content pillars that you should be talking about that relate back to your business that you are uniquely qualified to speak about. And then he has prompts like what are mistakes people make, what are myths, what's controversy, thought leadership, personal journey, objections, um, paradigm shift. Like he's got about 15 of those. So what I actually did with our executive team is ran them through that process to identify what are the like, this is a high level brand narrative that we want to tie back into, which is again, like your, your teams literally are not ready to do their jobs. And that is preventing you from growing your business. And then we identified five specific pillars that tie back into that overarching brand narrative that our SMEs and our thought and our executives can specifically speak to. And then I've given them 15 prompts that they can then look at the transcripts of what they have been on other podcasts saying, and they can feed that to ChatGPT. And I've actually trained, taught them how to train their uh, ChatGPT thread to sound like them by feeding it content that they've written so that it gets down the appropriate tone of voice, actually starts to sound like them pretty closely. And it gets them 70% of the way there on the content. And then they edit it, they make sure it sounds right. But we've taken what is typically a 15 minute writing process for somebody and actually gotten it down to where it's strategic, ties back into product and takes them three minutes and because we're tying everything back, we actually have a link that we can post in the comments that's, oh, by the way, if you want more content like this, we deliver a weekly newsletter. We have blog content on this. We have um, an, a podcast. So again, we're actually able to then take the audience off of LinkedIn so they can engage with us further. And then final tool that's helpful I have a love-hate relationship with it, but again, I, I want to showcase to our executive team where everything falls from an intent perspective. So I have created this single slide that are, these are the tactics that we are running for our program. And this is where it falls in a funnel. Do I, and I am always clear, will anyone ever follow this funnel? Exactly, not a chance. But when we look at the intent of where we want these things to fall within the larger um, is this an awareness play? Is this an engagement play? Is this a conversion play? This is how this is designed. And what I've done is I've then tied very specific measurable metrics to each one of those tactics in a spreadsheet that I then track on a weekly basis to see, are we trending up or are we trending down? And it's, it's literally as high up as like individual follower count by SME down to number of inbound opportunities created this week and number of meetings set this week, and number of referrals generated this week. So again, we can then actually say, we wanna have 40 meetings on a monthly basis. These are where we're expecting these meetings to come from. How do we then make that the reality? And if it's not going to happen, where do we make up the difference? So again, that's a spreadsheet. And unfortunately, it's a spreadsheet. I hate that it's a spreadsheet. I wish it were all living in, in a CRM. It's not the reality I get to live in right now. And I just linked out to all the different dashboards of all the different places. And I've created essentially a single marketing scorecard that measures the entire funnel for me. Very nice. How do you, um, in that spreadsheet, what are you doing to account for time lag? Is there anything in particular you're looking at? Yeah, I mean, I look at it through the lens of like very simply, did we hit the metric this week or not? 
And again, from a time lag perspective, I started tracking that two weeks ago. So I kind of already factored in time lag based on when I started to track it, because at this point I'm 90 days in, like we're starting to, we've generated from, we had an average of like one to, to zero inbound opportunities generated in the past nine months. And in the past two months, we've generated a total of 13. So again, I kind of already factored in timeline based on when I started to measure it. Um, but the other simple thought is like, I, I view this as a go to market motion of it's Monday. We know that we want to have six meetings a week or eight or whatever the number is. And right now we have four scheduled. So how do we make up the two meetings this week or next week? Is it going to come from inbound? Do we need to go outbound? Like, where is it going to come from? So again, it's a highly collaborative conversation with sales to essentially see how do I then go create more content? Because again, we know the long tail will be that inbound will make up a larger portion down the road, but we also have to serve the here and now. So like, how do I then support the uh, creation of these meetings right now in this moment? Awesome. So I mean, really from a results perspective, what we're talking about is within 90 days, roughly round for round number sake, let's say about 10 X inbound. Yeah. I mean, from we went from one to zero to 13 in the, or six to seven. So again, from that perspective, seven X, let's say five X five. Yeah. We'll go with five X. So we've, we've (laughs) just, you know, five X of the inbound pipeline. Um, and the, the other component is, and again, it's right now it's difficult to track because we've not closed those deals, but, uh, there is an element at which we are also tracking specific influence because we also know, especially right now, like it's not any individual single source that is a hundred percent responsible. So even in the quote unquote marketing source deals, I can almost guarantee these people are following my salespeople that are creating content and I'm helping them create that content. But like, is that marketing? Is it sales? doesn't really matter. It's happened. And that's the goal. Yeah. That's a hundred percent. I think everybody should be looking at it, you know, and there are industries where you have no choice, but to look at it that way, because if you're whatever, say 30 to 50% of your business is through channel partners, you got, you lose track of that. So you have to just look at, okay, what's my correlation between marketing activity and pipeline and revenue? 100%. Because you're not going to be able to track it all the way through. So, yeah, I love that. Um, We talked about results. Any other, uh, I'm curious, I mean, that's quantitative. Any other qualitative measures that you're looking at or that that you've seen happen over the last 90 days? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just simply mentions and we've started to track specifically not just posts that we create but also uh, posts that mention us so looking at like how many mentions are we getting on a weekly basis what's the engagement on those posts because we're looking at that through the lens of yes like we can we can prospect in our own networks but also to break out of our networks if we look at other social mentions then we can actually prospect into those posts as well so we have we have seen a general uptick in just social mentions and also um, sales assembly mentions because the reality is sales assembly did not have a a real marketing content program until 90 days ago. 
they have a ton of content, but it's all locked behind the membership. So by the simple fact that we are creating more publicly accessible, longer form content, people are just talking about it more. So again, I think that that's really where we're seeing those inbounds come in. Like for example, I don't know if you know, uh, Sam McKenna, she's founder of Sam Sales. She was a former LinkedIn executive, created a, a sales consultancy. We're doing a, a co-hosted podcast with her. So in her newsletter today, she announced our podcast on uh, on our behalf, which is super kind of her. And like we saw a pretty significant uptick in downloads today because, oh, somebody else outside of us is promoting our content. So again, it's, it's those kinds of things where, yes, people may know about Sales Assembly because Sam Sales posts about something and tags Sales Assembly in it. But it's different when it happens in a newsletter. It's different when it happens in a podcast and somebody drops a mention in the podcast. So again, it's it's because we're creating more publicly accessible content that is valuable, that is strategically tied back to our product and the value that we offer. We're seeing people actually pick that up. So we switch gears just slightly. In the very beginning, you know, when I was setting things up, I mentioned, you know, there's SaaS and there's kind of everything else and there, there's a difference in go-to-market motions and things like that. This is now your second, I mean, second in a row of non-SaaS uh, roles that you're in. But you sell into tech plenty, right? Um, what, what do you think is the biggest difference? Like, what are the things that marketers that are in businesses like you or going into businesses like yours or any other really service manufacturing even uh, type thing, um, what should they be careful of when they're looking at content that's out there that's very heavily SaaS focused? So the, the biggest challenge that I'm running into, admittedly, is like we are a, a sales enablement, skill development company. We're actually a content company. So we produce upwards of like six to 10 hours of content on a weekly basis. So the balance there is, I know that like the SaaS advice is give away all the information for free because if they know the strategy, they know the tactics, they'll come buy your product to then execute. The challenge is I like, that's my natural bent. Like I'm a very generous marketer in that sense. Um, but if I gave it all away for free, we wouldn't have a product. Like we don't have anything to sell. So it's then understanding how do we strike that balance of providing genuinely helpful, genuinely valuable content in such a way though, that it, it for lack of a word, like leaves somebody wanting more and saying, I really want that for my team always on all the time. So th I think the biggest difference is like, I actually think it's, e this is gonna sound awful. Uh, I think it's easier to market SaaS and specifically MarTech and sales tech, because you literally just tell people what, they should be doing and then say, Oh, by the way, our product makes it easier to do that. Do you want to do this? Great. Whereas now I have to like, I'm working through the challenge of providing highly tactical, helpful content that then says, Oh, by the way, if you want more of this, pay us $30,000 or, <laughs> Just keep coming back. So again, it's, it's that delicate balance. And the other challenge is, you know, personally within Sales Assembly, we serve 15 different roles. It's like we serve everyone from the SDR to the CRO to the CSM to marketing. It's very difficult to cover all of those roles. So again, understanding how do we appropriately market in such a way 
that we can showcase. We serve the entire go-to-market team. But the reality is also if we go like if we try to go so wide, then we'll never actually go deep with our specific buyer. And I, I like I'm thinking through what's the best go-to-market motion of do we go wide and showcase everything to all of the different roles? Or do we have that as our as our as our lines of we serve the entire go-to-market team, but then we go really, really specifically deep on uh, sales content and specifically trying to serve the CRO because the CRO is our main buyer. And it let it be kind of a surprise in the sales process of, oh, you actually serve like marketing and CSMs as well. That's fantastic. So again, I don't know the right answer, um, but I think the challenge that is different from SaaS to kind of everything else is, again, SaaS, you just talk through exactly what somebody should be doing and say, we make this easier to do. Everything else, like you can do that to some extent, but it's the delicate balance of how do I create enough value to showcase what to do while still showcasing that they should buy from me. Yeah. And I think it's even, you know, if you compare it to traditional service-based businesses like ours, for example, even I get more, I can do more of that traditional kind of, I'm going to give this stuff for free. Here's, here's the framework. Here's everything. The reality is you either don't have the, the skill set, the experience or the time to actually do this on your own. Or maybe, or likely a combination of those three. So you're going to come to me anyway. At least some portion of people will. Versus here, you're talking about the content is the product. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's an it's an interesting challenge for sure. Um, I mean, I I was just on a uh, on a biz dev call with with somebody in the in the medical space, and this is where I see uh, maybe something for you to look at. Actually, is that's one of the industries where I've seen a ton of success in these specialized niche communities. And the revenue model is half sponsorship, half, I mean, not half exactly, but sponsorship plus members. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's actually our model. And, so like, mm-hmm. it's about half sponsorship, if we're being honest, it's about half membership. Um, and like that's, we actually see great success with sponsor relationships because they get a lot of value out of being able to access this community. Um, but it's a difficult balance because admittedly, we we make more money with sponsorship relationships. But if you over-index on sponsorships, then the sponsors go away because you don't have the members. But the members, as much as like we love our community, but we make more money. There's a higher, higher ROI with sponsors. So like it's that delicate balance of how do we serve both audience as well? Because also if you over-serve sponsors, you lose members. So it's um to to that point. It's just a delicate. It's balance. a marketplace problem. You got to serve both sides of the marketplace, right? Yep. Yep. Awesome. Well, this was this is extremely useful. I think anybody coming in, anybody that's coming into a new role, uh, definitely lots of good tips to think about: mindset, skill sets, tool sets, and results. I think speak for themselves. Uh, anything else you want to throw out there for? Uh, for a new marketer coming in a new role? Um, I think the best... Marketing leader. Let's... Yeah. Um, the best kind of description... So take this episode, and then I think the two best additional podcast episodes to listen to if you want like a, a scalable content program that also then does generate that immediate pipeline uh, would be... I went on an episode called... Or a podcast called Efficient Growth where I talk through like in some pretty granular detail, the 30, 60, 90 
in the short term and the long term plays. And then I go really, really deep into content strategy on a podcast called um, Distribution First. So I think between this episode and those other two, you'll kind of get a comprehensive picture of like how do we build out a 30, 60, 90 that has short term plus long term goals? And then how do we effectively scale content as a solo uh, team? Awesome. Show me those links if you've got them handy. We'll pop them in the show notes. Yeah. For everybody. Cool. Well, Mason, thank you again uh, for yet another awesome conversation. Uh, do you have a few minutes to jump into our lightning round? Always. Let's see if your answers have changed. <laughs> <laughs> so let's hit the lightning round. What is the main KPI you use to evaluate marketing success? Marketing source revenue. What is something new that you're looking forward to testing out this year? Okay, so I'm really, really excited about specifically systematizing the LinkedIn social selling process because I think that that is something that I am uniquely qualified having been both marketing and sales in like the past year and a half and having uh, a number of executive leaders that have a solid following. So like looking at how do you truly convert a LinkedIn audience into pipeline that can actually closes. Awesome. What is a marketing quote unquote best practice that you think to, needs to disappear? Sorry, it's a lightning round. So I'll go ahead and give my immediate answer. Um, that marketers just like don't do certain things because they're not quote unquote marketing activities. Um, like for example, with the LinkedIn social selling process that I talked about, like I'm going to find the list and write the sequence and help the salesperson identify who to go outbound to. And like some people will look at that and say like, Oh, that's not marketing's job. Like marketing should be focused on like top of funnel and awareness. And I'm like, mm, it's kind of about booking meetings. So like, Yes, I understand that we have SDRs in some organizations, but like at the end of the day, all these roles and all these titles were made up. Like the goal is still the goal. So help get to the goal and then you can do the things that are, again, more longer term. So I, I just think that that's a best practice of like, oh, marketing shouldn't do that, where it's just dumb because we're we're creating lines because that's someone's quote unquote title versus actually tying what they should be doing back to a goal. Yeah, and I know it's a lightning round, but I I have to agree with that. I mean, yes, I, I think probably the most valuable thing marketing can do is definitely brand, but that's a long-term play. And I, I do think that most organizations don't have the luxury of making these delineations of content versus growth versus SDR versus AE versus whatever. You might have three people total, two salespeople and a marketer. Yep. You, what are you going to do there? Right. So yeah. totally agree with that. Um, what is your favorite business or marketing book? I don't think this one has changed. I think I still said building a story brand because it provided the foundation through which we do effective messaging. And if you don't have the right message, it doesn't matter how much you do in the market because you're not saying the right things to the right people. So again, building a story brand, I think it's the same still favorite marketing book. I don't remember. We'll check against your first answer. Um, this one, will be, this one will be interesting and see if this has changed for you. What is your least favorite business word or phrase? This one has changed. <laughs> I don't know what I what I had said previously, 
Um, but I actually hate the term demand generation, which is ironic. Um, because and here, here's what I'm learning a lot about marketers and I'm sorry to, to call us out, but like you've got probably 15, 20% of marketers that actually like know what they're doing and hold themselves accountable. And I feel like you've got like another 50% that to no fault of their own, they just don't really know what they're doing. And they're just like, well, we're generating demand. Like we're doing dark social and like they're making legitimately no business impact and taking a paycheck. And I just kind of feel like it's, it's going to come back to bite us eventually when people, and I think it's coming back to bite us like now, honestly. Um, but I think the term generating demand has, has become some, like there's a reason Chris Walker and Refine Labs no longer want to be associated with the term generating demand. And they're now moving all into like this revenue R and D, whatever. But like, I just, I hate the term because it's, it's now synonymous with marketers that don't know what they're doing. Sorry. Again, lightning round, but I have to agree. I mean, you see this all the time. I think there's a general trend of something becomes popular as it becomes popular. The definition gets broader, more convoluted and gets completely bastardized. And then it no longer actually means anything. And then people are pretty much doing the same exact things they've been doing and just calling it whatever that new thing is. Uh, and actually, there's some reason we don't we don't generally talk about demand gen either. Right. That there's part of the reason why we built our framework is that's part of it is what does demand gen even really mean anymore to the average person? So I have to agree with that. Um, all right. Uh, what is your favorite song or playlist or artist to listen to while you're working? Uh, recently it's been Ed Sheeran. Uh, I know people are going to hate that, but his new album is really good and it's really sad and really sappy, but like, I, I just, the, the song curtains by Ed Sheeran or his recently released version of, um, Oh, was he, he released a version with Luke Combs of uh, Life Goes On. Oof. Like, I know it's sappy, but it's great. And I know that that's a different answer because I think previously I said Lucky Chops instrumental uh, covers. But I'm different now. <laughs> You're always growing, always learning. Uh, and thank you for, again, for sharing everything that you did. Always glad, glad to have you on. And for everybody else... Hope you learned something new and we'll see you all next week. Bye. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Master Marketer Show. We'll be back next week with more B2B marketing success stories. Visit our website, www.proofpoint.marketing, for the full episode library complete with show notes, guides, templates, and more. Make sure to follow Proofpoint Marketing on LinkedIn and YouTube so you never miss an episode. Listen every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.